This podcast series is brought to you by the University of Sussex. If you're curious about what makes some apps successful and others not, this series gives you a valuable insight into seeing if your app has got what it takes. With the help of three successful app founders, we'll be investigating and answering some of your questions. I'm Chris O'Hare, your host and resident app expert with 10 years experience in software development and founder of award-winning technology consultancy, Hair Digital. We've built apps for businesses big and small. This is How to Make an App. In this episode, we'll be talking about defining and designing your minimum viable product, ready to give to a developer to build. And in this stage, we want to take all the feedback that we've learned from the previous episode, the testing, the prototypes, the website pages, and turn it into an MVP. Now, MVP stands for Minimum Viable Product. Eric Ries, author of the book Lean Startup, coined the term where he described it as a product that is used to collect the maximum amount of learning with the least amount of effort. An MVP is usually released to market as quickly as possible to test an idea with real users before committing fully and also learning what resonates with your ideal customer. Now, this doesn't mean it has to look bad or you can't charge for it. What it means is that the product needs to solve the problem that you're trying to solve. So you can then confirm it's a problem out there in the real world. To start with, we need to understand all of the features you'd like your app to have. And you could do this by creating a big list, which can be separated under different user roles. So for simplicity, say if we have a list for customers and a list for administrators, and then under the customer column, we can talk about all the features that customer would like to do, such as log into the app with an email and password or receive an email welcoming them, see the dashboard with their latest stats, go into an account and change your email address, all those kind of features. And then under the administrator column, we have features like disable the user account to stop them from logging in or changing a customer subscription manually or even adding a new administrator. Now, what you're doing in these columns is describing the actions that the user typically takes. In Scrum project management, these are usually called user stories. Now, for each column, we then do a Moscow analysis. And Moscow is a, a project management tool that enables you to determine the priority of each one of these features. And it comprises of the following four sections. So you've got must have, which is non-negotiable features that have to be in the app. And then you've got should have, which is the important features that add significant value, but can be left out. You've got could have, which are the nice to have features that add some value. And you have won't have, which are not important at this moment in time. To understand the priority for each of these, you can take the feedback from the validation and the prototyping stage and start to discern what features go in what section. And ask yourself, what did the users always comment on? What did they feel strongly about? And once you split out the features, what's not in the first two sections should go on the backlog for later. Now, we're determining what should be part of your MVP. And if you find this hard to do, then what if I told you that every feature will cost money? and that your ideal customer may not even care about it. It would feel like a waste of money, wouldn't it? 
So we want to prioritize what your customer must have in order for them to hand over the cash. And there's actually a neat trick at this stage to save money. Your app may not have a lot of users at the beginning. Therefore, what you could do is you can fake clever functionality, especially if it costs a lot of money to create an algorithm or something similar. You can create a user interface that sends off to a real life human who will work out the problem and input the result manually from the administrator's side. Once this is unmanageable, you could just outsource this to someone else. And don't be surprised that a lot of startups saying they have artificial intelligence actually have a lot of human intervention. So now you've prioritized your list of features, what next? Well, you're going to need to work with a UI UX designer to create a specification to be able to pass over to a developer. A user interface and user experience designer is an expert in modeling how the app should work along with all the intricacies of each button and how the final design should look and all the animations it should do. Often a UI designer and a UX designer is the same person as the job roles tend to overlap quite a bit. The designer will have a lot of experience in mapping out human behaviors and where users would expect to find a button or actions that take place, giving the app an intuitive feel, which is really important if you want the users to keep coming back. Designers are often found in the prototype stage as well as they often conduct user research, user testing, use personas, and they make wireframes too. But finding a UX and UI designer should be relatively straightforward. And if you're already speaking to an agency, they'll always have them in their team or they can recommend someone, likewise with a freelance developer. So make sure to check out their portfolio as every designer tends to have a different style. So now you've got a UI UX designer. What you need to do is finalize all the wireframes that you did in the prototype stage with all the feedback that you've gathered. But this time you're going to add wireflows. Wireflows are wireframe screens with flow lines showing what each feature does and a description of how it should behave. And does it go to a new screen or does it show a pop-up message? What happens when you cancel it? These are the kind of things you'll see next to a wireflow. Now wireflows can either be a big map showing all of the wireframe screens with flow lines between them, or they can be broken down into feature specific wireflows. And you may need to do several diagrams of the same screen to fully describe what it does if it has a lot of functionality. You'll also need to create a mood board, which is a collection of examples, screenshots, colors, design elements, and even competitors to help the designer fully understand what you're visualizing. Remember, they're not mind readers. Sometimes it's also best to let experts crack on with the design. There's a lot of backseat designers who think they know better than the expert. The designer will take all of this information that you've given them and turn that into a detailed design specification, along with all the design assets that a developer will need. Some advice around this stage is to ensure the design specification is clearly articulated and as detailed as possible. No gray area that's open to interpretation. For example, if you want the app to send out pretty emails, make sure that's in the documentation. Essentially what you're doing is reducing the amount of time a developer has to think. The more they think, the more time they will take and ultimately it will cost more. So earlier on, I caught up with Ian Wakeman, co-founder of Tribehive, 
a sports stadium companion app to hear about his experience of building an MVP. The story probably started in 2011 when the stadium was completed for Brighton Hove Album, the Amex Community Stadium. One of the things about having this great big thing planted like a big spaceship next to us on the other side of the A27, Brighton Hove Albion realised there was going to be a level of disruption to sort of both University of Brighton and University of Sussex and match days. And so they were keen to build good relationships. So we set up a meeting between the club, Brighton Hove Albion, various representatives, between American Express and a number of their representatives and people from University of Brighton and University of Sussex to talk about possible collaborations and in particular things we might do around the research space. There are a number of things that sort of kicked around. I got rather excited seeing that they were actually keen to do something about this because I'd had something kicking around quite a time about how to do and make things work better in crowds. I'm a big football fan. I've spent my life most of the time following Chelsea going to sort of Sweden and going to, to all sorts of strange places to watch them. I got a season ticket with Brighton when the stadium opened because my son was a big fan. And the problem about football matches, you're in a crowd of about 30,000 people. And when you pick up your smartphone and try and use it, you find you can't get a connection out of the crowd because you've got 30,000 or more people all trying to use the 3G base station capacity to actually get their connections. So because at the time both Android and the iOS operating system in Apple were starting to build towards uh, allowing sort of nice interfaces into their devices, I started to think, well, okay, there's a way of actually possibly making this work, looking to see how you can get phones to talk to each other in a crowd and circulate the data around between the crowds on a phone-to-phone basis. So you're next to someone, they've got a phone, build a connection between those two phones. And the thing about sort of capacity of 3G base stations is whilst you may not be able to get a connection, there are still around 200-odd people in the crowd who can use the connection at that particular time. And the idea was, once you get to the stadium, your phone would build a connection with all the other people running the same app in the crowd. You wouldn't have the data, but ones who can connect would reach out back to the sort of the servers and suck down the updates of the app and circulate around the phone-to-phone network within the stadium. So that's the key bit of sort of technology testing we wanted to do. EPSRC, the Engineering Physical Research Council, is the normal body I go to for research funding. So sort of I had some basic sort of conversations with the club about how we might sort of fund this. And so I went and put an application into the council, asking for what was about £80,000 or so to actually do a one-year project to see if we can actually get this phone-to-phone network running within a crowd within the football stadium. It was funded. And so at the start of 2012, we had money and I pulled in the team who were going to sort of build the software, who were going to do the testing. And we started on the research project to see if we could get this phone-to-phone connection in the crowd working. So who else was on board to help you? We had a great deal of help from the club, in particular from Paul Camelin, who is the sort of club publicity officer. He said, OK, this is great. Let's go and see if we can make it work. He would allow us to connect with a number of season ticket holders who would act as our user base. And we would then sort of build an app that made sense for those fans. So we had two lines of work. We had basically the technical work, working to build a library which would make the phones connect to each other. And then we're also doing some work around the user interface to make it an app which actually people wanted to use. So we worked with the fans, ran focus groups, ran surveys, 
and sort of built sort of mock-ups and then sort of built it into sort of higher precision sort of prototypes to test whether this was something a fan might like. So on the way through the sort of 2012-2013 season, we came up with a pretty good design of an app. As we drew closer to the end of the season in sort of March, we actually got the software working for the first time after several sessions where our technical team would spend an awful lot of time overnight working. Indeed, there was a couple of occasions where they did an overnight stint on the Friday night to be able to deploy out to the fans on the Saturday morning so that they could test it out on the last few matches of the season in April of 2013. And the great thing about this was it worked. We got the software running. We had all the test results came in. We could see that it was actually more efficient. We could see standing in the crowd that we were getting sort of better connections than you could get off the BBC site or Sky Sports. And so we knew we had something which actually worked. And the club were really enthusiastic about it. They seen what we'd actually built. They seen we'd actually had an app which was sort of a best of breed um, around the championship clubs at the time. They seen that the technology did what it said on the tin. It made a better connection out for the sort of the app itself. So they were keen to actually for us to make it into a commercial product. We had our basic minimum viable product then. There was a lot of problems with it. There was a lot of work to do to actually sort of clean up the code, make it work, and to get it ready for something that would actually be allowed by the Android Play Store. And then later that summer in 2013, something that will be allowed by sort of Apple onto the App Store. So I guess the thing was, could you really make this work? And what was that like? One of the interesting things about sports is the actual rights of who can do things with the scores, with the club colours, with the club badges and all those things which are copyrightable, tend to be owned not necessarily directly by the clubs. And in particular, the digital rights of all the clubs which were in the Championship and League One and League Two were owned directly by the English Football League. So we had a number of conversations with the EFL over the course of, sort of the project itself to make sure they were happy with what we were doing. Again, facilitated by sort of the Brighton Hove Albion. First time we met them, they went, ah, this is so crazy, it might actually work. So we were feeling quite encouraged. And so they were thought, looking at us and thought this was reasonable. Summer of 2013, we said, yeah, okay, we're going to develop this into a commercial product. Are you actually interested? And they said, yeah, let's get it to the point where it is a proper commercial MVP and then we'll support you. Coming towards the end of summer, something which we thought was going to be viable properly, we did need at that point to think about, well, what can we do? How can we get the funding to actually support its next sort of step? This is the point where it's really useful to actually be in a university. There are many pots of money around for commercialization of university research. In particular, the one which came up, and just because the deadline was appropriate for us in sort of mid-September, there was an opportunity to work with the Royal Academy of Engineering to become a what they call an enterprise fellow, which basically meant you got £85,000. Remember, we had another £80,000 previously to actually do the initial sort of build, which was sort of by all of my time out of teaching, as it turned out, and to allow some support for sort of bringing people in and paying them to allow us to actually sort of move forward with the product. Our team and I sort of made the commitments in September to actually sort of form the company and to try and go forward. If we were to get the money, we'll have a think about how we could get other funding if the money didn't come through. We called it Tribe Hive after much kicking around with partners and everyone else because picking the right name for a company, once you've got some technology, feels as though it's an important thing to do. 
one of our team has actually got some artistic, creative talent, came up with a pretty good logo. The only thing we didn't have at that point was customers, which is kind of a difficult thing for a company to be in. Nonetheless, we persevered trying to sort of get our product up to a commercial standard. We got the EFL down sometime in December 2013 to come and have a look, see what we were doing, go and check to see it worked and did what it says on the tin. They were happy with it. Then we got the go-ahead in February to say, yep, we think this is good enough. We're going to use it and roll it out to a number of other football clubs who are going to volunteer to do this and we'll pay you some money. So we got our first £20,000 in from the EFL to roll out prototypes for six clubs. So we built these apps February through to sort of June, showed them to the clubs, and we were ready to go and roll out for the start of the next season. Of course, you need to fly the flag about all this to tell people that you've arrived. And how did that go? We did a launch event with the Royal Academy of Engineering. They were quite happy, the fact that sort of we already turned the product into a, a company that was already making money. So we had a really nice sort of launch event down in London at the Royal Academy of Engineering's headquarters. And we were nervously biting our fingernails about what would happen when we actually launched in August when the football season started again. And it worked. Again, it just was nice. We did an awful lot of work. We did a lot of testing. We'd launched again on Apple as well. We'd mapped and brought in sort of a couple of people in March, our first two proper employees to work. And we'd had an Apple version built as well. And we had two versions of the app for each of the clubs. So 12 apps in total on the Play Store and on the App Store. And the fans liked it. These were the first sort of apps for sort of championship clubs. They downloaded and we had sort of a fairly quickly nearly 100,000 uses per week going forward. How do you then monetize all of this? Once the clubs were happy, we would negotiate a, a monthly fee to actually keep the apps running to run the updates. This wasn't necessarily so sort of popular. I mean, the clubs aren't very rich when they're in the championship. The vast majority of their money goes on player wages. Putting infrastructure around to support fans is expensive and doesn't necessarily bring the sort of return on investment that they would like. So we looked around and fished around and talked to sort of the customers to find out what were their problems. It turned out one of the big problems was there was a way of sort of getting broadcast of a football match when you weren't actually there at the stadium. And this was built in as a digital player thing that was played over the web. The Football League did have a generic app and the company that produced that were asked if they could incorporate the Football League player into their app and they just couldn't do it because there was a little bit of trickiness about the source and what the codings were. We looked at this problem and went, yeah, we can do this. So again, we spent some time writing software. We said, well, we can pitch this to the Football League saying we can do this. And they agreed another £15,000. If we get it done, demonstrate it was working and rolled it out to the apps. So we did. And so now we basically had another chunk of capital come in. We had the monthly fees of around £6,000 coming in. So we were actually feeling like we're a proper company, five of us working to actually build this software. And we were starting to make progress and starting to actually sort of feel as though we were going forward. We got the opportunity from the Football League to go and approach other football clubs. So again, we looked at all the other championship clubs. And I must confess, I'd been doing an awful lot of time on the phone doing the business development. I could ring up sort of just about any club from memory for their telephone number to go and talk to their publicity officer or their commercial officer to try and get a meeting, to try and put together what we were doing. Again, because we were giving them a solution to a problem that their fans were telling them about, it was relatively easy to get in and have those conversations. Beyond the original six, we got to Cardiff, Nottingham Forest. Very quickly, we built up to 10 clubs by February 2015. 
At that point, it got a bit interesting. The clubs themselves have said, nah, well, £1,000 is too much. We need to reduce that. So we got down to £800. So now we're getting 6400 in a month. It's getting difficult to actually pay everyone's salaries. And we wanted to expand as well. Around that same time, the person who used to run Opta, Adrian Cooney, rang me up and arranged to come and have a chat because he was looking for a new CTO for his own new company. So I went and had the chat. We actually turned the conversation around to sort of rather than him sort of poaching me, he actually wanted to get invested in our company and go forward. So at that point, we had our first angel investor coming in to actually inject some money to allow us to grow and to move forward. And that deal was finished in at least 2014. So when we actually sort of sealed the deal, we got 120 grand in and we started to move forward to bring in more people. We worked with Adrian to actually build better sort of relationship and actually understand what he thought he could do with the market. And again, we spent a lot of time talking to the clubs. We went to the major football exhibition. We basically did an awful lot of work to do sales to actually sort of form relationships. We started to expand out to sort of Premier League clubs as well. So eventually we got to Aston Villa, which was a really good sign. We had Crystal Palace as well. And we were feeling in quite a good place. 2015, we were growing. We'd brought in new employees. We'd moved out of the university into proper premises. And we were sort of working to actually build relationships, not just with football clubs, but starting to work with other clubs as well. We spent time working with the Rugby League, talking to Rugby Union, the Rugby Union Premier League, and with the 12 clubs who work over in Ireland. And it was all looking to be going forward relatively smoothly. Obviously, you always want more customers. And then I got the offer to return back to the university. They wanted me back to go and sort of run the department. And I had to make the difficult choice about what did I want to do. Yes, I can imagine this was a, a big moment for you. So what did you do? I eventually sort of let it go. Aidan wanted to come in and actually sort of run the company, sold Opta for somewhere in excess of £50 million. He had a bunch of investors who were quite happy about him. And they were very keen for him to come in and build a new sports marketing company that would not just use our technology, but would also look to build digital management systems for football clubs. And now the company builds apps for multiple sports. It's worked in cricket, in both rugby union and rugby league. Um, it runs a very successful super league for membership management system. It now works with Sky Sports. They run our build, uh, manage the Sky Sports Score app. And everything seems to be going forward and actually sort of building the technology and the machine learning mechanisms and the data science things that actually tell you about what the analytics are around the fans themselves. Everything was going smoothly. And then the pandemic. The company's in a strong place to come out of this because now more than ever, clubs recognise the importance of digital. How did you turn that idea into a prototype? The conceptualization of what it is that you were going to do and then say, right, this is how we're going to do it. What was the process of that? Once we had the money and we were looking at how to do the plan of how the project was going to work over the first season, we knew we basically had to have both an app which engaged fans, which fans wanted to have on their phones, and we needed to build the technology itself, which would allow the phones to connect to each other to then sort of be able to distribute the data in the phone-to-phone network. My colleague, John Rimmer, we basically sat down and we worked together to come up with what's going to be a way of capturing the user journey so we can actually give them what they want on the app. And that was based around a number of things we did. I mean, John's got a strong background in ethnography. Remember, of course, that we actually sort of worked with the club 
they gave us access to sort of 100 fans or people who wanted to opt in and work with us to actually build this app. So we had a user base that was A, committed to the club, and B, were enthusiastic about technology. We ran a couple of focus groups to allow us to actually get a handle on what they actually wanted as the features within the app. So we put up low-priced mock-ups or sort of things we want to do, tables, scores, commentaries, all the things you can actually get around sort of a particular match. They also wanted the ability to actually sort of send communications. We looked at how we can actually do things like Twitter. Twitter turns out to be relatively easy. And so we had an initial set of features. John then also set up a survey. So we actually went wider to a number of fans saying, what do you actually want in an app? So again, we had sort of a quantification about sort of what things were most important. We also did ethnographic studies. John met people in New Haven and went with them on their journey into the stadium, collecting understanding and evidence about what their journey is, so they, how they meet people beforehand, actually a family event, sort of father and son. We had a lot of time for every match in the stadium. So basically in the sort of 2012-2013 season, the club were generous enough to give us access to the West Stand. So we were able to go into the stand, talk to the fans, engage them, get them to understand what we were trying to do. And we were able to observe what fan behaviour actually was. And again, it's fairly obvious if you go to football matches, there's a lot of fans who go to the pub and then get the train and come to the football stadium. Then they'll mill around using the bars in the stadium to have an extra pint or two. And then they'll go in to watch the football match. And then some of them will come out and try and get another pint in at uh, half time. Brighton football ground is relatively remote. A lot of people are actually hung around after the match. So given that journey understanding, given the way we actually sort of knew the fans worked and given the conversations we had with fans, we knew what the right features we should have on the phone should be. We then worked incredibly hard. We recruited in PhD students, incredibly sort of talented. Kieran Fisher is still the CTO of the company now. Stephen Nakin now lecturing. And we built the software that made everything work. And again, the amount of effort, the push we actually did to make this work because we knew we had something that was going to be potentially be really exciting was incredible. We did an awful lot of logging and sort of capturing of data about sort of how much was being communicated, how much was being moved around by the, the phones between the stadium so that we could write the paper. And sort of we wrote a paper over the summer that we got published, which uh, demonstrated the prototype working. But it was a research prototype. It was something that was a bit crafty in some areas, which we had to work a little bit to actually get it onto the main app store. And this was all distributed via the testing channels to begin with. So we had to do quite a lot of work to get it up to sort of the standards Play Store would really accept. And we also needed an iOS version. We needed to actually sort of create an Apple version. So we did a lot of work over the summer to actually put together a version that could be put onto the Play Store for Google and put onto the App Store for Apple so that people could actually put it in their phones. And so by the time August came around for Brighton Hove Albion, we had something which looked like a good minimum viable product. Brighton Hove Albion got permission from the club to actually sort of go wider than the initial test group. And so in 2013, we launched a minimum viable product that went out to every fan within the stadium at Brighton Hove Albion. And that gave us a, a lot more information a lot more feedback where we could actually fix the bugs, fix the features very quickly, introduce new features as people wanted them, and get to the point where we said something which we thought was commercially viable. What did it look like from the prototype to the commercial version, from this rudimentary app to the polished version? 
as anyone will know, once you actually get started in and start to be build things which actually make sense within the operating system, both iOS and Android, it can get quite crafty quite quickly. So a lot of the effort was actually cleaning that up, making sure we had clean structures so we could do maintenance on the code, and actually we were just basically improving the efficiency of the algorithm. It was just an incremental sort of fortnightly on fortnight sort of improvement using the sort of the data we got back from our logging. Again, we're talking in 2013, Apple and Android weren't as strict as they now are on sort of what you could get on there. We were doing things which were a little bit naughty. One of the things which stopped people doing this before in Android was basically you're not meant to do it. But we found sort of little tweaks you could do around uh, some of the interfaces which allowed us to plug in when we shouldn't be to actually sort of run what was Wi-Fi direct when normally it requires a user to sort of say, yes, this app can sort of turn on Wi-Fi direct. Anyone installing on the phone, we made sure they were aware that when they got to the football match, these things would turn on and only then, so lots of work on the privacy notice and sort of making fans aware of what they were getting. We felt ethically right. Now we tried that. I think we'd actually sort of have real troubles getting on sort of either store. The hacks, as technology progressed on those mobile platforms, they became a lot easier to kind of utilize the actual proper way of doing things. So the hacks became sort of integrated into sort of libraries that were actually supplied by iOS and uh, Android themselves. And the interesting thing is, essentially, as Wi-Fi has improved, as the 3G, 4G network has improved, it was turning out by 2015, 2016, it wasn't necessary anymore to actually sort of really sort of push the phone-to-phone connection. We'd done all the work. We made our reputation. Sometime around 2016, uh, the company stopped developing the sort of phone-to-phone system because no one was asking for it anymore. That's really interesting that you took a USP, a unique selling point for this technology. This basically opened the doors for you. Once you've made the brand, once you made the name for yourself, that you then essentially could create a whole commercial entity around it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the point is what you want in the relationship between a company that does sort of business-to-business services is a company that solves problems. So we started by solving the problem of connectivity within a stadium of providing an app that fans wanted to use. That was a problem perceived by the clubs. They were aware of it. Then we sort of solved the problem of providing the sort of the football league player on an app Again, everyone was happy. This kept the clubs interested, kept the clubs actually sort of using the apps. And then we just basically continued that sort of journey. I mean, sort of we did a lot of work working with QPR and Ticketmaster to put together the app that sort of enabled the phone itself to become your ticket. And that's a technology which is now sort of rolling out and becoming wider used. When Aiden took over to turn the company into a sports marketing company to look to actually sort of um, um, do this sort of data analysis and to actually build the fan journey and enable clubs to actually sort of get actionable data out of that was also the pivot to actually solve a problem the clubs have. And this works really well in Super League and it's starting to be rolled out in other areas as well. Ian Wakeman, co-founder of Tribe Hive. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like a cheat sheet for this episode, please go to www.hair.digital forward slash how to make an app. In the next episode, we'll be back with Ian talking about how to fund your app. There's an unexploited market there around what you do with all the information people are happy to give a football club, even in the light of GDPR. What can you do with that information to increase the amount of money you make per fan? 
And that's essentially what the proposition was that sort of attracted investors. And we built up to sort of getting a new round of investment of basic seed money in excess of £1 million. At that point, I left to go back to university in January 2016, and Aidan has taken the company forward from then. This has been a Fresh Air production for the University of Sussex.